Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. Hi, my name is Chuck. I will be your host. And today, we are talking with Thomas Greenhill from Northern California. He is a glider pilot who loves to fly contest and is planning to fly in the World Gliding Championship before his 25th birthday. Thomas also has a love for sharing his love of soaring and has found a way to connect young pilots together to share and learn from each other. Join us now for episode 16 of Soaring the Sky. Thomas Greenhill, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. I greatly appreciate you being on the podcast, taking your time. It's good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So when did your adventure in aviation get started? Um, so I started flying, or well, I started building balsa models, uh, just free flight models when I was uh, very young. And then I eventually transitioned to remote control. Uh, so I flew radio control aircraft for uh, from the time I was about 8 to 14, uh, building them all the time, uh, flying them. And then eventually when I was old enough to start my glider training, 13, 14 is when I started doing that. Um, I soloed at 15, and then I got my license uh, about a month after my 16th birthday. And then since then, I've been... So one year after my I got my license is when I first started actually soaring. Um, I then bought half a half share of a standard Cirrus, and since then I've been flying about 175 hours a year, oh, mostly mostly cool. cross country. That is and, the cool thing I like about aviation. You know, you don't have to purchase a whole aircraft; you can actually buy in, which makes it a lot easier for a lot of people. That that's very cool. Yeah, and the other thing is that it's. Uh, I mean, once you've made the investment the actual maintenance, I mean, uphold cost is actually really low. So it made a lot more sense for me to buy a half share uh, of a standard series than to continue renting gliders, especially because rental of um, medium to high performance gliders is pretty expensive. <laughs> yes, it is for sure. It's, it sure helps when you don't have to worry about that extra cost. And maintaining a, maintaining a glider, of course, is a lot less than maintaining powered and yeah, as far, as far as the actual maintenance, of course, yeah, there's not, um, I mean, there's there's no, no <laughs> very few moving parts versus an airplane. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to lubricate. Exactly. So are you flying the Cirrus now? So I fly the Cirrus as much as I can. Um, I, right at the moment, the, the co-owner um, is waiting for, he, my, the co-owner bought a JS3. So the JS3 is, um, actually, I think it's in Minden now but he hasn't picked it up yet. So he's been flying it. Um, and I'm, I'm also practicing for, I'm flying open class nationals at, at Hobbs, New Mexico this, this summer. Oh, um, nice. So I'm, I've been uh, doing everything possible to get ready for that. I've been flying an ASW 22, which is uh, loaned to me by a, a local pilot. Very, very generous of him to let me fly his, his, uh, his big wings, but I certainly enjoy flying it. That is going to be very exciting for you. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great time. It's my first nationals contest. Um, if I if I want any any chance at making the world team um, before I turn 25, so I'm 19 now, and I, I really have to fly nationals this year. And the only nationals that lined up with my um, my school and work schedule is uh, 18 meter and open class, which is at Hobbs. Um, and luckily, I was able to find a glider to fly. My mentors are also going to be there, so. Hopefully, it should be a good contest. Now, the Nationals, that's what, at least four days of racing? 
Um, it's scheduled for almost two weeks, but I, I, I think the, the minimum, from my understanding, minimum number of flying days is five. Okay, I got you. And then I guess the, I think the regionals are less. and The regional requires two days of flying, so it's not really, uh, yeah. Which was, uh, so that's actually how we set up the, the, the junior contest camp. And I, I'm, I'm really glad we got, it, it rained two days and two days were flyable. So we were able to uh, complete the contest. So from what I understand, um, you, you were kind of the co-organizer of the West Coast Junior Camp Contest, which was sponsored, of course, by the SSA. Yeah, yeah. The SSA, um, the SSA sponsored us. I, I, I did most of the organizing for it. Um, I had uh, Ben Mays. He, he did most of the sort of glider port specific stuff, um, mostly logistics and getting tow planes and stuff like that uh, situated at Williams. So for people that don't know a lot about uh, sailplane racing, can you kind of give us yeah, what, sh- it, what it kind of entails? Sure. So basically you have um, a bunch of competitors in the morning, uh, there'll be a, a presentation with the uh, basically what the forecast looks like, and you'll have a declared uh, the 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 committee the contest committee will uh, provide a declared task, basically something that they think is feasible for the day, as in it won't make everyone land out, but it's also still challenging, right? So they'll declare the task, and then the 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 whole goal behind flying a contest is making it around the task as fast as possible. But there's a bunch of um, peculiarities with different tasks and whether it's um, an area assigned task or uh, what we call an MAT. There's, there's a bunch of different ones. <laughs> so, they're ba- so it's basically like a triangle. That- well, it, it can be out and return. It can be triangle. It could be 10 turn points. It could be, yeah, um, but I mean, there's a a minimum of a, a start, one turn point, and a finish. Okay. Uh, um, does so that make sense? It, yeah, absolutely. And so it's kind of so you're sacrificing speed for altitude, altitude obviously in the race. So well, putting all that together, right, and trying to get to the next point. Yeah, and it it, it gets um the the biggest thing is is at least at the um, regionals or nationals level is because at that point you you're you know where to go to find to find lift but the the biggest factor in uh, determining who's really fastest is is the decision making not only in the like choosing the lines but also in not stopping if the if the climbs are any less than um your threshold the other thing is um what we call switching gears which is recognizing that the conditions are getting better or worse ahead and flying faster or slower based on that. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. And what do your speeds range within the race, you would say, if you'd average the speed out, like the low and the high? Well, I mean, so the the speed is based on speed on task, right? So when you're thermaling, your speed is effectively zero. Even though you're doing whatever, 45, 50 knots, um, you're, not going towards your, you're not going towards the goal. So your speed's zero. Um, usually, so when we fly in the Sierras here, uh, in in, I mean, depends on what class glider you're flying as well. Uh, on a good day in the Sierras, I could do 70 knots average. Uh, in the Sierras, that being said, um, people flying 18 meter or open class can do 100, 110, 120, 120 even um, average speed. And that's mostly because they just don't do as much turning. 
um, so you can <laughs> cruise a lot longer and spend a lot less time stagnant. So at the end of the day, it's on a point system, correct? Yeah, whoever exactly. Has the most points. So the but, the person who wins the date, who whoever flies the fastest, whoever flies the fastest handicap speed, depending on the contest. If it's a handicaps contest, uh, handicap contests are sports class and standard class uh, and club class as well. Um, and and basically, uh, whoever flies the fastest uh, handicapped speed gets a thousand points, and everyone else is scaled uh, based on that person's speed. So the handicap kind of makes it fair for everyone. Exactly. So you could have people in the same contest, say um, a standard class contest. You could have someone flying a standard Cirrus and someone flying a Discus two um, in the same in the same contest. And I mean, obviously, there's a big performance difference there. So it's not fair if you're comparing the direct speeds. So what they do is they they put in a handicapping system, which basically scales. Uh, I mean, the standard series is the standard, so the handicapping the handicap factor is one, but um, the the discus is something like uh, it's somewhere in the 90s, and basically you, you multiply or sorry, 90 percent, so 0.9 something, and you multiply your your raw speed by that handicapping factor to get your uh, to get your handicapped speed. Oh, very cool. So those gliders are still able to compete. They just with the handicap that makes it makes it they all can do it. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's actually. I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I think that the handicapping system in the U.S. is pretty flawed because it only takes into account um, straight glide, straight glide performance, and not circling performance. Um, and the other, and the other thing is that when you're flying, especially in high winds where you have a strong headwind, the the lower performance gliders suffer a lot more than the higher performance gliders. Um, and those are all those are all things that the Europeans take into account in their handicapping system. And I've been working on the SSA trying to get them to, <laughs> well, Peter Dean and I, uh, so Peter Dean is my mentor, have been tinkering with um, new handicapping systems that we're trying to get passed by the SSA. Yeah, because those are some very good points. You know, the, the aircraft is not just about the glide ratio. I mean, all that comes into a, a factor. So that's very important. Right. And the other thing is that, I mean, so this season so far, I've been flying um, pretty much exclusively open class. Um, and the thing that I've come to realize is that it's not only about not losing as much altitude between thermals. It's actually that you can make it to to a thermal that's a long ways away. Whereas in, in club class in the standard series, you'd have to turn back. So, yeah, there's definitely some some unfairness there, especially in in weaker conditions or in conditions where there's um, uh, thermals that are few and far between. Yeah, because it depend, like you said, depending on what you're flying, you're not going to go there if it, if you know it's not going to get there. <laughs> yeah, they're not even going to be able to try it. Exactly, and th- I mean that was the case on the the second day, the second flying day of our junior contest. I made it to the very far end of the um, uh, of the turn point. Anyone that and so Ben Mays was flying an ASG32, which is, I mean, also comparable performance to the 22 that I'm flying. Um, and him and I are the only ones who made it more than about 10% into the turn point. <laughs> um, and the turn point had like a 16 mile radius on it, so it was a pretty big turn point uh, given oh, the conditions. Yeah, that is wow. But that, I think that the other pilots that were there, had they been given the the higher performance gliders, would have been able to also go deeper into the turn point how do you prepare personally for a contest 
something that I do every time I fly is I, I, I declare a task. And even on, on a day that I think it won't be very good or on days that I think will be really good, because when you declare a task before taking off, when you get near your turn point, if it's not if, if it's not on your lift street, if it's not on your cloud street, or if you're flying wave, if it's not on your wave bar or whatever, you still have to deviate to go to it. And that's the case in, in, in racing. But in flying cross country, you can just go to the end of the cloud street or wave bar or whatever and turn back. And sort of going from um, the mentality of, oh, I'm going to turn back now because I've gone as far wherever as I wanted to go and I'm turning back. I'm like, uh, now I push myself to actually make the turn point. So that's one of the things it, when I'm flying um, that I do to, to, to prepare for contest. There's, there's, a lot of other, um, there's a lot of other factors, um, sort of mental, physical preparation, but um, as far as actual flying goes, that, that's what I do. So can you remember the first time that you really kind of pushed your comfort zone to try to do some cross-country? Can you tell me a little bit about maybe one of those flights that you really had to mentally push yourself to get through it to, to try to get there? Well, I, I was very fortunate. So my, my dad's also a glider pilot. And so I've been very fortunate. The first year I was flying cross-country, I pretty much flew lead and follow with him. Um, so I, I learned a ton flying that way. But um, the times when I would, I, I feel like um, the time I sort of pushed myself the most and learned the most really was one of the times when um, when the comfort of, uh, having my dad flying with me was no longer there, but I still wanted to go fly a long flight. So I, I, this was uh, a flight out of Truckee, California, uh, where I was trying to do my my Diamond Goal flight down to um, start of Truckee, go down to North Mono Lake, and then back to Truckee is a 300 kilometer out and return. Uh, actually, I mean, it's a little more than that, but um, it, it, that's what I declared for my Diamond Goal. Uh, and there was thunderstorms the whole way and the whole, and the whole way back, but I, I oh, made it back. Wow. And actually, I, I mean, the, the thing that was most amazing about that flight is I, I glided for like 70 miles um, under the, the benign side of a thunderstorm, but there was just still air for 70 miles. And then, <laughs> I, I mean, it was pretty much straight glide to where I thought I was going to be landing out. And then I found a thermal on the hill behind it uh, and it got me home in, in good time. But yeah, that was that was an interesting day for sure. Uh, very cool, but re- especially relieving when you got to that thermal. Yeah, definitely. But it was one of those days when it was so unstable that any 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 sun on the ground was going to be creating a very strong thermal, and that was a spot that I saw had sun on the ground, so I was going just there. Yeah, and luckily it worked. Do you use a like a glide slope computer? I'm sure you do for your races. Yeah. So. Um, the the glide computer I have in the standard Cirrus uh, and also the the um, the two or I guess at this point the three gliders I fly the most are the standard Cirrus, my dad's Discus two, and the ASW twenty two. The standard Cirrus and the Discus two both have um, SN tens in them, so uh, that's Dave Nadler's uh, glide computer, and it's hands down the best uh, glide computer for money, especially to, when you're using it for racing and flying tasks. And then the um, the ASW22 has uh, redundant clear nav systems, which I think are pretty nice. It's also really nice to have a redundant system so that you can still have your your racing task in one of the glide computers. But then, if you if you're getting low or something and you want to just punch in a land out 
um, but not have to go through and change your task. That's really nice. Plus, um, if you did have one Glide computer fail, it make things com- <laughs> very complicated for scoring later. Have you had to land out? I've had to land out quite a few times. Um, so only once uh, sort of off-field, uh, but I've landed at um, other airports many times, especially in the Sierras. Carson City is definitely a favorite because um, so where I, where I fly in, in Truckee, so Truckee is surrounded by very tall mountains. So the, air, the airfield height is uh, 5,900 feet and there's 10,000 foot mountains pretty much around all around it. Um, and there's, I mean, there's, there's some, some areas where you can quote unquote squeak through. Um, those are still like 7,500 feet and, um, and there's nowhere to land for 15 miles before you quote unquote squeak through. <laughs> um, oh, wow. so there's, so making the transition back into Truckee is, uh, definitely difficult. And, and just on the other side of, um, just on the other side of the mountains on the east side of Lake Tahoe is um, a, a little airfield. Actually, it's not little. It's pretty big uh, called Carson City. When you can't find a thermal to get you high enough to make it comfortably back into Truckee, um, that's usually where we end up landing. Uh, a very, very quick air retrieve spot, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I've landed there quite a few times. Well, that's nice that you have those locations. You can kind of map it out, you know, while you're yeah, exactly. practicing. Land here. Okay, I can land here. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of, especially in the Sierras where you get pretty high, um, there's there's actually a lot of, you pretty much always have an airport and glide. Um, if not, you have very good fields. <laughs> uh, and then the only, so the only time I ever landed out in a, in a sort of a field, uh, which was sort of a, a rookie mistake, I landed out, I think it was like 1230. I, I took a, uh, a, a mountain tow from Hollister. And I was I was hoping to do 500 kilometer flight, and I just I saw I saw clouds in the distance, and I flew, <laughs> I, I glided into rising terrain, which, uh, I mean, it, it reduces your airtime a lot, right? When you <laughs> when you, oh, yeah. you go from having ground level at zero to having ground level at 3,500 feet, um, so I ended up landing at a little. It's actually a, a little abandoned airstrip called Hernandez. When I landed there, it was actually covered in daisies. So uh, it was it was a pretty land out and I mean it was perfectly safe. They ended up air retrieving me out of there. Um, oh def- really? Wow. Definitely a bummer to to have landed at like 12:30, um, and then as soon as I landed, there was a, a cumulus uh, cloud sort of went off above me. <laughs> of course, that's how it works, right? Uh, exactly, and of and of course, my dad passed me at 10,000 feet about 20 minutes later. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, I mean, that's a mistake I haven't made since, and I hope to never make it again. Yeah, well, that's one, you know, cool thing about it. You can learn from all that and learn to be a better pilot and not to make the same mistakes again. Exactly. So if somebody wanted to check out some, maybe some video of your flights or maybe some pictures, where could they find that? Sure, I have um, I have a, a few um a few videos on my I have a soaring YouTube channel called Tango Soaring because the the glider I fly most of the time is uh, five tango that's the standard series uh, and there's there's some cool videos on there there's a video of um, my diamond wave flight uh, that I, I did it from Williams actually ended up uh, a ridge soared for about five hours before I was able to get into the wave I th- I think I'm uh, I don't know this for certain but I'm I'm one of 
maybe three or four people in California to have done to have completed my diamond altitude before uh, going into Class A airspace or going into the wave window, going above eighteen thousand feet, um, just because I almost landed out before <laughs> before getting into the wave. And there's also there's some some cool videos uh, from my my dad did a 1600 kilometer fl- uh, wave flight um, this summer, uh, so I made a video about that. Uh, various other ones as well. How long was your father's flight that you were speaking of? I it was pretty quick actually. I think it was around eight hours because I I mean in Sierra Wave you're pretty much flying VNE the whole flight. <laughs> So I, I think the average speed was around 200 and something kilometers per hour. That was moving. Yeah, yeah. So average speed on that flight was 185 kilometers per hour. Oh, um, very cool. Yeah. Uh, there's also on my YouTube channel, there's a video of my, I, I attempted a thousand kilometer yo-yo in the discus too. I, I made it like 950. I actually might, I might have barely made the thousand K. It wasn't the declared task, um, but my flight computer or the batteries died before I landed, and there was roughly a 50 kilometer glide <laughs> home. So who knows? Anyway, uh, so yeah, lots of cool flights on my YouTube channel. You're flying gliders, you know, early on, and what made you want to race? Because I mean, that's you know, that's some people just learn how to fly gliders, and they're cool with you know flying around and enjoying the scenery but what what pushed you to start racing and and to go beyond that so the thing i've come to realize is that to really get to get really good at flying gliders the the best way to do that is to fly contests because you're flying with people who are better than you and who are going to beat you but they you're going to learn so, so much off of them uh the other thing is that the you can fly cross country all day and as i said fly just to the end of the lift and then turn back. But a lot of the times in contests, they'll force you to go places you wouldn't go normally. Um, and by pushing you that way, uh, at least I feel like I learn a lot every time I fly a contest task. And the other thing is, a big part about flying gliders is being able to keep your cool in um, in tough situations, right? And <laughs> you get exposed to um, significantly more tough situations when you're flying contests. And that's not that doesn't always mean you're getting low, but you're constantly having to make split second decisions that um, could mean five miles per hour or ten miles per hour on your average speed. So that's that's why I fly contests. And the other thing is I thoroughly enjoy it. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, I like the people I fly with, uh, and I I really hope I'll be able to make the um, the world team before I turn 25. I've two worlds before I turn 25, so hopefully one of those two be able to go to. Um, but I have a lot of improving to do uh, before then. Well, that is a, that's a big goal, but we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that and, and watch you as you start that journey. We'll definitely be rooting for you on that. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. So, I mean, the path to that is, um, yeah, I have to fly two nationals before I can even qualify to go to Worlds. Um, and reasonably is that's one one nationals a year so uh, it'll be at least two years before i'll i have any chance of going if i if i fly <laughs> hopefully if i fly well i'll have a chance i'm sure you'll do great where are the worlds are they in different locations depending on the race or how does that work yeah no it changes up all the time um well so this year it's uh, i believe hungary um and a few well 
a few people I know, um, uh, Michael Marshall is, is going flying there. He's, uh, I think, 24. Um, Daniel Sazen, who's a very, very good pilot, and also around that age, I think 24, will be going. Um, and there's, oh, and Noah. Noah, uh, Noah is also going. I, I don't know Noah very well. Yeah, the, the, hopefully they have some kind of shot this this year. Uh, usually the German, the German juniors are insanely good. The German and the French. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, yeah, they do a lot of flying over there, from what I hear. Well, yeah, and the other thing is that they have a they have a whole coaching system, right? So, so you have nationals or worlds level mentors uh, mentoring the the junior pilots. Um, oh. <laughs> that makes sense yeah and actually uh, so my mom's french so i have french citizenship uh which means that i i, I have the possibility of going and flying uh the french national championships the the, the french junior national championships so maybe I'll, I'll i'll try to do that next summer that'd be a lot of fun <laughs> no that would be very cool profit from 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 their uh <laughs> their system a little bit right <laughs> <laughs> not sure how how much uh, how happy they'd be if I if if I ended up seeing them at Worlds, <laughs> having trained with them, <laughs> but we'll see. Oh, it'll it'll be fun to see how the story plays out. Yeah. So, do you have an, a memorable flight that really sticks out in your mind as far as any of your flights from the time you started flying gliders? I know the one you're talking about landing out must have been pretty pretty crazy, but do you have anything <laughs> else that stands out? I have a lot of very memorable flights. I mean, several where, several where I, I've found myself really in the middle of nowhere. Actually, I, I've never been low in the middle of nowhere. But sort of the realization when you're out in the middle of the desert, in Nevada, and it's like there's no one around me for 60 miles. Those are pretty awe-inspiring. <laughs> um, but I think that one of my most memorable flights ever is flying. Um, I flew over the over the pacific ocean um so basically I, I took off from hollister uh with the intention of going flying thermals over big sur so big sur is a, a pretty tall mountain range um just right on the coast um there's some of the mountains there are five six seven thousand feet um so pretty tall mountains and for whatever reason this day was it, it was a tricky day <laughs> um i went over there and i mean Usually there's there's a little mountain range between Hollister and Big Sur, um, where where you can usually get get some some lift. But I, I went over there and there was literally nothing, and I was I had just I'd driven down um, from so I go to university in, in Davis, uh, California. So it was like a two and a half hour drive, and I was just like I, I don't care that there's no lift here. I'm going for it. If I land out, that's fine. <laughs> and so I went for it. Um, and I sat in very weak lift for a long time. And then I eventually, and this was like below ridgetop height, but I still had, I had land out to, um, uh, a couple different airports just in the, in the Salinas Valley. Um, I eventually got up and I've never been in such weird lift. I, I've never seen a day like this since then. Basically I, the thermals were topping out at like 6,000 feet and there were these sort of cumulus looking clouds. But they were they were clearly not being they clearly weren't from ground heating. It was maybe mid level instability or something. But I managed to go from the thermal layer to this this sort of un, unstable mid uh, mid level uh, situation, which 
gave me a very weak climb. Um, but I got it to like 10,000 feet there. And it's pretty crazy to go from uh, staring at a, an airport you're going to be landing at um, to being at 10,000 feet. I mean, it was, it was a weak climb, but the view over the ocean was epic. Um, so I went over the ocean uh, just for a little bit just to, <laughs> to say I did it. Uh, and then I came back, got, got that same climb up to about 10,000 feet. Um, and then from there, I had very comfortable glide to uh, back to Hollister. So this wasn't a very it wasn't a very long distance flight, but it was just so magnificent because it's so rare to be able to go, go over the ocean like that. Of course, as soon as I go on final glide, I end up with like a 30 knot headwind, and this this was a, a wind out of the east, so extremely unusual. In in California, we almost always get winds out of the west or southwest. So uh, especially with with that with that level of strength, and um, I had something like twenty to one home over I don't know fifty or sixty mile glide. It's not like I was really and I was flying a Discus CS, so it wasn't like I was flying a. <laughs> I, I had a very comfortable margin, but there was just so much headwind and there ended up being some sink and I ended up landing at a controlled airport, um, Salinas Airport. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> and the. Um, the controller was a little confused when I landed there. <laughs> uh, he, he, he thought I was having an emergency. He sent the fire trucks. Um, and I explained to the, the, the fire oh, trucks no. that I explained to the fire trucks that I, I was perfectly fine, that I just couldn't make my final glide. Uh, actually before this, the funny thing is that I, I, was, so I was talking to the approach frequency, um, and the approach controller, uh, kept every maybe one minute, um, would give me, uh, would give me wind readings everywhere and then tell me, have you found any upwinds yet? Have you found any upwinds? <laughs> he, was, he was like, you could see, you could just hear this guy rooting for me from behind his desk, you know? Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make him proud, but uh, I still had a very good flight. <laughs> and a good experience to tell, right? A good story to tell. <laughs> That's right. And the other thing is that, well, so Salinas, um, Salinas Airport's, kind of an odd airport it's it's really it's it's massive um there's three runways they're each like a mile long and so i i i tell the 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 the, the controller that i'm going to be landing long so i can take the high speed uh high speed turn off so i can get off the runway and so i do that and then i, I talk to the controller again ask him where to go um like it, he says taxi to transient parking and then I, I take a look at <laughs> I take a look at where transient parking is, and it's totally on the other side of the airport, right? So I I had to pull the glider about a mile. Oh no! Uh, and eventually the, uh, the the tow plane came and got me, and we used the tow plane as a golf cart to get back to the runway. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that was that was a fun day for sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he he clearly didn't understand what you were flying. Uh, clearly not. No, but I mean. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever landed at Salinas before. The, the, that was that was an interesting day. How was the traffic around you when you're coming in? I mean, that must there was have been. there was no one. I, I I don't think I saw another airplane land there. For oh, the, well, that's like, good. Hour I was around. It, it was odd. I, I don't know why that airport's so big. For, from my understanding, that's where the sort of like uh, agriculture executives fly their private jets in and out of. Um, it's oh, a, okay. Um, it's a very yeah. So anyway, it's a huge airport for maybe no good reason, <laughs> and I landed there. <laughs> well, hey, it, it was there, so that's good. 
That's right. So, um, from what I'm reading a little bit about you, um, you are a big promoter for other young people to learn how to fly and encourage them to learn how to fly. Um, that's pretty cool. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, ever since I've had uh, my license, I've been at any occasion where I could take any other junior or someone, anyone who's really up and coming or really interested uh, and would benefit from flying with me. I'm always happy to fly with them. And so I started, um, I started tinkering with the idea of, so, okay, let's go, let's, let's rewind a little bit here. Um, at the, so every year we have, um, meetings, the Pacific Soaring Council, um, here in California. And, and the issue was raised that the <laughs> soaring community is getting really, uh, old and there's no one, there's no young people to replace them. So we started brainstorming ways to improve that. And at first, the, 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 the way we were thinking of doing that was through, get, through getting, basically trying to get new, new young pilots to start soaring. Um, so what I did is I, I set up a, a Slack group. I don't know how many of you or Chucker, I don't know if you're familiar with Slack. Um, yeah, I'm a little familiar with it, yeah. But basically, it's, it's an online messaging system with specific channels. It keeps things really organized. Uh, you can contact whoever it is that you want. But I, I set it up for um, basically for juniors to get in contact with each other. And what I realized from making that is that there's actually a lot of juniors around. It's just that they don't know each other <laughs> because they fly at their own isolated areas and they very rarely get to actually come across each other. And this Slack group has actually totally brought the community together in California. We also have, uh, I mean, it's it's total totally inclusive. So we have people from uh, the vast majority of people from California. We also have some people from the East Coast. Um, some of the French junior teams on there. Uh, we got some kids from South Africa. Uh, a couple people from Australia as well. Very uh, cool. Basically, basically, so we can all just get in contact with each other. And once I set up that platform, it was actually pretty. Um, it was it was good to know how to get in contact with people. When I, I set up a um, a junior camp at, at Avenal last, so Avenal in, in Southern California um, in September of 2018, uh, which was very successful. It was a lot of fun. Um, the weather was <laughs> stable, <laughs> so it wasn't very good, but uh, everyone had a lot of fun, and um, Slack the Slack system definitely helped me get everything organized for that. And then once that was a success, sort of proof of concept, um, we went in and organized uh, the bigger one at, at Williams, um, and the one at Williams was a ton of fun. Um, we we pretty much met the capacity of Williams. I think we had 18 gliders there. Uh, they asked for no more than 20, so there was definitely a, it, it was yeah definitely a lot of fun. Um, uh, that and, is very cool, and and it did is it is definitely a real challenge. There's I'm sure many clubs around the country and other parts of the world that are having that that problem where you know the older guys are getting older and they're not flying or able to fly like they did and there's not a lot of young people in the club the club just kind of fades away and that's that's sad so that is so cool that you're doing that helping the younger people bringing them in and getting these clubs active again and and firing up the enthusiasm that's what it's all about yeah, absolutely. And, and if there's any if there's any people here listening to this podcast, um, 
who are part of a club administrations and stuff, if you, whatever you can do to make it affordable for juniors, because those of us who are college students or high school students, um, whatever, uh, it could be really difficult to afford it. Um, something that my local club has done is made it, um, usually the membership is $100 a month, but they've halved that for, for students. And it actually makes a huge difference. Yeah, and encouraging students to keep not only learning in school, but to come out and fly and give, give them a incentive to come out and fly. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that if there's any other juniors listening to this and you're not already on the Slack group, um, I'll, I'll make sure Chuck has a link so that um, uh, so, so that you can sign up and, and join us in the Slack group. Because if you're not, even if you're getting good at flying, right, if you don't have friends to fly with, that are your age, it can be really discouraging. So, yeah. Yeah, that links everybody together. And, yeah, definitely encourages them to fly. And, yeah, that that's really great that you're doing that. And we will definitely get a link. We'll put it on the website so people can get a hold of you and join that. Well, I would like to thank you for taking your time today and being on the podcast. There's a lot of great stuff that you're doing, and I'm really encouraged by that and keeping – the young people's enthusiasm and getting more young people into flying and soaring and keeping this thing going because it's a great sport and it's a great community and it's very important. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Right, well, and, and thank you for, um, for setting up this podcast and for interviewing me. It's a, yeah, good cause for sure. Well, we look forward to watching your journey and I wish you the greatest, you know, luck with all your racing. Keep it up. Keep that enthusiasm. and That's exciting stuff. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And thank you for listening to this episode of Soaring the Sky. Check the show notes if you want to watch Thomas's YouTube channel, Tango Soaring. And while you're online, you can check us out at SoaringTheSky.com, where we have our guest pilot page. Also, for a sneak peek at our upcoming guests, you can check us out on Instagram, Soaring the Sky Podcast on Instagram. Also on Facebook under the same name, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you're a glider pilot, we would love to hear your story. And if you're an aviation enthusiast and you want to say hi and tell us where you're listening from, we'd love to hear from you also. You can email us at chuck at soaringthesky.com. And as we mentioned in the last episode, we will be at Oshkosh this year. More information coming up about that. We'd love for you to join us next week for another guest right here on Soaring the Sky.